0: Thank you very much. I I feel very humbled by that. I'm just a normal person, and uh, and those of you that know me know that, especially my children. Um, but yeah, Ethan um, has asked me to share before because he knows my story, and um, I think in the past I've been hesitant to share because I I was looking for a way I didn't want it to focus, even though it's it's my story. It's really God's story and um if you will all be so kind i i would like for you to participate a little bit as well this evening because when you when you love god and you walk with jesus you get caught up in the bigger story of god and the bigger story of what god's doing and how he's working and how he's moving and so this isn't my only my story i mean my story is just an example of how god is working and how he's moving and um, how he's bringing healing and wholeness to so many people and that includes you as well and so um, There are some times where I'm going to ask you to participate a little bit if that's okay And and the first thing we're going to do before we get started um, Is uh, I'm going to ask you to turn over your old paper and number one to four and I'm glad we're on spring break and we don't have any college students because they would be falling out of their chairs if they if I was asking him to do anything that resembled a test, but it's not a test, it's just for your eyes only, and it's just to get you starting thinking about how God has worked in your own life and how he has shown up for you in various ways. So the first person I want you to think about is I want you to reflect back and I want you to think about the first person who told you about Jesus. So think about the first person who told you about Jesus, and you don't have to overthink it, Um, but just write write that person's name down on your sheet. And then the second one that I want you to write is I want you to reflect and think back on someone who helped you grow in your faith or someone who helped you understand the gospel in a deeper way. So first, someone who first told you about Jesus, and then someone who helped you along the way, who helped you grow in your own faith. And then the third one I want you to think about is I want you to write down someone who chose to be with you during a difficult time. And so it's not someone who came in and fixed your problem or offered a bunch of solutions, they just said, you're going through a hard time, and I want to be with you in this, and I'm just going to be the incarnational love of Jesus for you in this time. So think back on a heart when you went through a hard time, and someone who, who said, I will be with you in this. I'll be with you. And then the very last one, number four, I want you to think back and I want you to write down um, someone who celebrated you. And um, not because of what you did, because you made it to states and swimming, like my son Mac. I had to give him a little Thanks. shout out, yeah, I <laughs> know. Yeah. Uh, but, but just because just they celebrated you just for who you are. And I love Mac just for who he is, not just because he made it to states. Okay, so that just kind of starts you thinking about how have you seen God show up in your own life. So my story, or the part that I want to share with you today, is about the instability of growing up with a mother who had undiagnosed mental illness. She actually um, was bipolar, but she wasn't diagnosed throughout my whole childhood. So that was the kind of environment that I grew up in. And we all we live in a fallen and broken world, and my mother and my father were both very broken and wounded people. And Jay Stringer, who was just on campus last week, um, he said this, and I, I love this. He said, you know, in Christianity, we have both an honor culture and an honest culture. And we honor people like Abraham as the father of our faith, but we're also honest about his failings and his misgivings. And, and that's what I, I want to do. I, the same is true for my parents. As I, as I share my story with you, I want to honor them, but I also want to be honest about um, their lives. Both of them had very difficult lives. My mother grew up on a ranch in West Texas, uh, living a hard scrabble life, um, living off the land. Her father was an alcoholic. He was an abusive al- alcoholic, and he was verbally abusive. He was physically abusive, um, both with his children and also with his wife, my grandmother. Um, and looking back now, they think that my grandfather was probably also suffered from mental illness, that he was probably also... Uh, manic depressive, but he went undiagnosed. And so he used alcohol to kind of control his um, massive mood swings. Um, My my grandmother was a tough West Texas woman, but she was beaten down by life and literally by her husband. And she didn't have anything left to give to her children, um, including my own mother. Uh, My father's parents, on my father's side, both served in World War II. And um, my grandfather was a flight surgeon, and he came back from the war like forever changed because of the things that he had seen and experienced and just the atrocities of war. Um, He never got on a plane again after that time. And during that time, because he was a physician, Um, He became addicted to morphine and painkillers to help kind of numb the pain of some of the things he had seen. And because painkillers were unregulated at that time, (laughs) he had unlimited access to them. Um, When he came home from the war, he served as a rural doctor in West Texas, and he was only one of two physicians in the entire county. And so he and another doctor... uh, Um, It was very stressful, just had to take care of everyone in the county, and my dad remembers him being so stressed out that uh, he came home one night, and he he smoked cigarettes too, and he was smoking, and he had two lit cigarettes (laughs) in his head, you know, he was just like, I can't get the nicotine fast enough, you know, like, um, and, you know, that's how stressful it was. And his addiction to pain medicines actually eventually caught up with him and he died of an overdose when he was maybe 51 years old when my dad was in his late 20s. So my dad was still, um, he was either just out of college or a college student when his father passed away. And then you add to this that my dad's younger sister, who was only 18 months old, younger, And was a childhood playmate of my dad. She's bright and gifted and talented, and she had Marfan syndrome, um, which affects your heart. And at the time, now they could do a simple surgery and replace that, but at the time they didn't know that. And so she came home after her freshman year at the University of Texas and passed away that summer. So within two years, he lost his dad um, to a an overdose, and he lost his sister. And my grandmother, uh, so both of these losses, so close together, left my father in a state of shock and deep depression. Um, he was also lived with a better and angry mother that he then um, had to take care of for the rest of her life. And um, And in some ways, my father has never recovered from these losses and has struggled with depression for most of his adult life. And even as I was kind of writing these things down, I just have to tell you, I was overwhelmed by just the weight of the heaviness and the sadness and just brokenness that is this world. And if you just took any one of those things, it's kind of like all of those, that sadness um, is a bucket, you know? So you just put any one of those losses for my parents, for both of them, in a bucket. And those things just kind of get thrown in the river of life. And what happens is as more and more of those things are thrown in, the waters rise and rise and become more turbulent. And those things get passed downstream, don't they? And that's what the scriptures talk about when it says, you know, the sins of the fathers are passed on to the third and the fourth generation. You know, so my grandfather was forever changed by the things that he experienced during World War II. Um, And then that affected my father, which then affected me. And those things just kind of, those buckets of sadness just kind of get poured in and flow down until at some point you have to say, no more. You know, I'm putting the cross of Christ in these waters um, to, to absorb this evil, to combat this evil, to come against this evil. Um, that, um, you know, I, we can't let this go on any longer. It just continues to rise and flow and flow um, the farther it goes along. And some of these were sins of their own choosing. Some of it is sin that is done against us. And some of it's just the result of living in a fallen and broken war, um, fallen and broken world, like my grandfather getting caught up in World War II. Um, So yeah, but that we have to do the hard work of honestly looking at what it is we've lost to grieve these losses and invite the healing blood of Jesus into these gaping wounds So all that to say that my parents were two very wounded and broken people without many resources to draw from. And now as an adult, I can see that and I I can have compassion on them and I can see the limitations that they brought into parenthood. But as a child, I had no comprehension of that. I had no understanding. Um, All I knew is that I needed my mother and my father to be parents, uh, to protect me, to be present to my needs, to guide me through this world, and there are many, many stories that I could tell from my growing up years, stories of neglect and abandonment, especially emotional abandonment, Um, but I I prayed and kind of asked the Lord what I should share, so there's, there's one that I feel like kind of sums up my childhood in many respects. Um My father came of age uh, during the war in Vietnam, and because of what happened to his father, he was terrified of going to war. Um, and so he stayed in school as long as he could to kind of, he was drafted, but he delayed the draft. And then when he finished school, um, he had to serve out his military service, and so he they were sent to Fort Wainwright in Fairbanks, Alaska, because we were in the Cold War, the very, very Cold War, in northern Alaska. Um, and those are where my very first memories are of growing up. We moved there when I was three, or two or three, and we lived there until I was five or six before we moved back to Texas. And so those are where all of my first really growing up years were. And the, one of my very first memories, and it's my first because I was completely terrified and alone and scared. But my parents and I, I do not know why they did this. There are a lot of things I questioned that I just don't think they had a lot of capacity to be parents. But um, when I was three or four years old, so I was probably around the age of like Helen English or Zoe Claire. Um, like Penelope, around that age. I mean, I was three or four. And my parents put me on a bus to go to chapel on the base. And so the the bus came around the military housing and picked up kids. And my parents, for some reason, thought it would be a great idea to put their three-year-old on the bus with no one else that I knew to go off to a place with no one else that they knew or no one else I knew. And I remember getting on that little school bus and, like, having to, like, throw my leg up on the seat, like, being so little I couldn't even get up. And my my little legs, like, dangling on the floor over, you know, not hitting the ground, and sitting on the front of the bus and just being completely terrified. And um, we arrived at this chapel on this military base, and I remember there was a woman there, who looked as shocked to see me (laughs) as I was to be there, you know. And looking back now, too, I just think of the graciousness of God, like, who was that woman, you know. But she grabbed my hand and said, you're going to sit on the front row with me and brought me to the front. And, you know, I just remember, like, being completely terrified and just feeling alone. Just feeling completely alone and afraid and what am I doing here and what am I supposed to be doing? (laughs) I was thinking about this story and um, I still remember the emotions that I felt in that moment of just being afraid and alone. I don't remember how I got back home. Mm -hmm. I, I think I kind of blocked out that part of the story. But I think in that way, that story represents so much of my childhood of just being on my own, having to figure things out, having to kind of make my own way because my parents just couldn't be emotionally or present to me. And when you grow up with a parent who has mental illness, life always feels chaotic. Everything's chaotic. It feels... Things are very uncertain. Things are very unstable and unpredictable. You can't depend on them uh, to do certain things that normal parents would do, like drop you off or pick you up. Um, And I realize now that I suffered from what psychologists would call disorganized attachment, which develops when a parent feels unsafe or unstable and fails to respond appropriately to a child's fears or troubles. So in regards to childhood development, I recently read that the prefrontal cortex in your brain is not fully developed until you're 26 years old, which I was like, wow, that sounds really late. But if you have teenagers, you understand that. Yeah. No offense to mine, but, uh, you know, and so until that time, I was like, wow, 26 years old. Um, A child is dependent on a parent or other healthy adult in their life to help them through the challenges and difficulties that life can bring. Um, And every time we gather as a church, you can see so many examples of children who have healthy attachments to their parents. Um, And you'll see this every time a toddler, like little James or Finn or any of these guys, they go out and they explore and they play. And then when they feel afraid, what do they do? They run back to their parent. They run back to their parent. And I recently learned that what they're actually doing as far as attachment goes is they're borrowing their parent's brain. Okay, So when they run back to their parent to be comforted or soothed, They're borrowing, they haven't learned how to kind of self-regulate or soothe themselves yet. So they're borrowing that part of their parents' brain um, to help calm them down. And the really cool thing that they've learned now in neuroscience is that um, we can actually do the same thing with God, is that we can turn to God and come to him and he can help soothe us and regulate us and comfort us that we can develop that same kind of healthy attachment um, that healthy children have with their parents when they come back. And if you're interested in this, Kurt Thompson has a fabulous book called Anatomy of the Soul that I would highly, highly recommend. But he goes way into more what's actually happening in your brain. But that was so encouraging to me when I read that, that we're not stuck with I mean, praise God that I'm not stuck as that little three- or four-year-old, completely terrified, on the bus, all alone, with my little feet dangling over the edge. That instead, that we can actually change those thought patterns um, in our brain as we turn to God and come to him for comfort. But what happens when a child such as myself runs to her parent for comfort and the parent is not either not physically present, or in my case, not emotionally present. For me as a child, I had to develop all kinds of coping strategies, such as becoming hypervigilant, controlling, manipulative, just to survive. I also believed the lie at a very young age that no one was going to help me through this world. I felt completely on my own and had to figure everything out for myself without emotionally stable parents to guide me. And these difficulties continued through my growing up years, although I didn't really understand what was going on. I didn't have words for mental illness or bipolar disorder. Um, I knew I had a difficult relationship with my mother, but I didn't understand why she was sometimes irritable and upset over minor things, which you'd say manic, and why other times she wouldn't come out of the bedroom for days, which would be depressive. As a firstborn, I took on a lot of the responsibility of caring for my sister, who was five years younger than me. And this went on through my teenage years until one afternoon, a very caring neighbor showed up at my house, knocked on my door, and said, I haven't seen your mom in a while. And I made probably some snarky teenage comment. Like, yeah, it was just because she hasn't been out of the bedroom, you know, for two weeks or something. And she said, is it okay if I go back and check on her? And, and I said, yeah, you know, absolutely. And she went out and talked to my mom. And at that point, my mother was so, um, I don't want to say far gone, but she was so... She was starting to like see things that weren't there and hear voices and things like that. And my neighbor knew right away that this was not right. And so she lovingly and caringly did the hard thing of calling my dad and saying, this is not right. And she needs to be hospitalized. And so at that point, my mother um, was hospitalized um, in a residential psychiatric ward And I still don't completely understand why my father let it go on for as long as he did. I think some of it was a combination of shame. Um, This was in the 80s and there wasn't as much openness and talk about mental illness. I think some of it was just passivity and some of it was his own depression that kept him from doing something sooner. And speaking of shame, I felt the heavy weight of shame and the stigma of mental illness. This was during the 1980s, like I said. I was in high school, and my high school friends were certainly not going to talk to me um, about what was going on. Um, Once again, I just felt completely alone, and I was hurting. I was confused. We attended church as a family. But sadly, no one from our church reached out, no one brought us meals, no one talked to me about it. And so I was angry. I became so angry and I was angry at my mom for um, being sick, even though I didn't understand it wasn't her fault. I was angry at my father for letting it go on for as long as he did. I was angry at the church for not caring and not showing up, and if I was honest, I was angry at God for allowing it to happen to our family. Um, My mother finally returned during my senior year of high school, but had to be hospitalized several more times uh, to work out her medication. And the hard thing about when you um, have a family member, and I know some of you do that struggle with mental illness in this way, when she came home, she was actually so over-medicated that it was like she wasn't even there. She wasn't present. She had kind of that flat affect. Um, And so the memories of her that I did have of being active and lively, we're gone. And the hard thing about something like that is, too, is there's not always a place to grieve that loss. Um, you know, she came home from the hospital, and she was medicated, and so she was stable, and that was good. But it, you, you've lost that person in a sense. They're there in body, in physical form, but they're not there mentally or emo- emotionally present. It's very hard, difficult to emotionally connect with them. Um, And so there wasn't really a place to grieve that loss. I remember at one point uh, during inner healing prayer that I'll talk about in a little bit. Sometimes when you do inner healing prayer, (laughs) God gives you a picture of what's happening um, or a memory. And I remember seeing my mom in a picture and she was like a cartoon character that had like the X's on the eyes. You know, it was almost like she wasn't there. You know, it was, it was the grief of that. So when I was in college, I, I, I went off to college, I went to a large state university where I could be anonymous and walk across campus and no one knew anything about my family. Um, and I pursued the things that the world told me would make me feel better. So I joined a sorority because I wanted a place to belong. I tried to make good grades. I dated the right guys. I wore the right kind of jeans. You know, like if only a pair of jeans would make you feel better. You know, have you ever had that? These shoes will make me feel better. But all of these things just left me feeling empty, as I know all of you know. And after a particularly hard breakup with a boyfriend, I found myself crying out to God and just saying, God, there has to be more than this. You have to show up for me, because I don't know if I can go on like this. And God certainly showed up for me and started bringing different people into my life, including a wonderful mentor um, who opened her home to me and other college-age women. Um, And she not only opened her home, but she also opened her life and was was very much kind of a mother figure to me during that time, Um, just taking an interest in me. And it was through that relationship that I eventually moved to Washington, D.C. and lived in Christian community there and worked for a Christian nonprofit, and that's the same group that I met Colin through. So God was slowly melting my heart, but there was still a lot of bitterness and anger and resentment and unforgiveness that I carried um, in that time. And if you, this is another little participation, but if you take your, Fist and you make, if you take your hand and you make a tight fist like that. If you can just feel all the energy that it takes to hold like that, like those things anger, bitterness, resentment that I was holding on to. Um, you know, I was so scared in some ways to let go of those things, but at the same time, that takes a lot of energy to hold all of those things together, and it was it was wearing me out. Um, yeah, and, and also it takes a lot of energy that you don't have to give to other things. Uh, you don't have emotional energy for other relationships or things like that. It's tiring and exhausting, and that's how I honestly felt most of the time. I remember hearing a talk when I was in D.C., and it was about loving God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I remember them focusing on that, loving God with all of your heart. And they said, you know, if you're serving God and doing these things for God, but you're carrying around this unforgiveness and anger, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you're doing all these things. And I remember feeling so convicted by that because I knew that was me, um, but I didn't really know what to do about it. I didn't know, I didn't know how to, to get rid of that. I felt deep conviction about this, but I didn't know how to untangle these knots that I carried. Mm-hmm. After Colin and I got married, um, he gently pointed out that I seem to have a lot of anger, you know, <laughs> which uh, doesn't take a doctorate in psychology to uh, figure out. And, um, you know, up until a certain point, you can kind of manage those kind of emotions like anger and bitterness and resentment. But after a while with this, I you know, the stuffing down, you can stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff until it comes about here, and then you get to be what I kind of call leaky. Um, that's, that's a very you know technical psychological. I got leaky, you know. But you see this all the time, don't you? Or maybe you see it in yourself where you overreact to something that's very simple. Um, or you see this in road rage all the time, like you know just the anger that people are carrying around inside of them. And I'll I'll tell you a little story uh, that demonstrates this because it shows Colin for the saint that he is, and it shows me for the sinner that I am. So, but when we were first married, um, we were we were resident directors, um, just like some of Sarah and Sai and Bennett and Caitlin Potter, um, as we were in graduate school, and we had a teeny tiny little apartment with a little kitchenette. And kind of our arrangement at that time was I, I did most of the cooking and he would clean up. We didn't have a dishwasher for the whole first five years we were married. And he would do, you know, all the dishes afterwards. And one day I came in one night. I was working full time as a teacher then. And I came in and he had left this pot and we had probably had lasagna or something. And it was just in the sink full of water. And I came in and I looked at that pot and I was like. You are such a soaker. <laughs> <laughs> and Colin, being the very gracious person he was, he looked at that pot and he looked at me and he said, oh, honey, he said, please tell me this isn't about some dirty pot and the sink, you know. But, but that's what I mean. Like, And I don't even remember what it was, but you just start to get leaky. It comes out in different ways. And my poor husband had to put up with a lot of that. And so at this time, I did some talk therapy and that helped a little. Um, But when we found out we were pregnant with our first baby and we found out she was gonna be a daughter, I felt a deep sting in my heart of just, oh God, like help me to have a good relationship with her and help me to be the mother that she needs. Um, for this little baby girl. And having my two little baby girls was an invitation to healing for me to examine my own pain and begin the long road to healing. And sometimes, like I said, when your fist is so tight and so wrapped in control, it takes something um, like you know, me having my daughters and wanting to have a better relationship with them and wanting to be a mom for them. Like, sometimes the, it takes something like that, that motivation to, to open your hand in that way. Um, it was during that time that Colin was working at a mission college in Appalachia. It's actually where the Cowans went. It's a fun fact. Um, they were actually students there when we were there. And um, after the years of our arrival, there was a leadership crisis, um, including a misappropriation in funds that trickled down and affected everyone who worked at the college. And so we lost part of our salary. We lost benefits. And um, as, as Ethan would say, this was my kryptonite, you know, because it was the people who were supposed to be in charge. Who were supposed to be taking care of us were not doing their job, and it just wrecked me. Um, you know, I when the adults who are responsible for me are not doing their job, I go into a tailspin. I say my inner child has a temper tantrum, um, and this time our girls were babies, and the leadership of the college was acting irresponsibly and I hit rock bottom, and I just came to the end of myself in every way, Um, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I couldn't think my way out of it. I couldn't pray my way out of it. I couldn't come up with other ideas of how to get us out of the situation. As much as I tried, I could not manage this on my own. It was beyond my control, which in many ways was the mercy of God because it revealed the lie that I could no longer depend solely on myself. I had to turn to others and to God. And if I was honest, I had to admit that I really didn't believe God was going to show up for us either. Um, But in his wisdom, God needed to expose those lies and bring them into the light. He needed to bring me to the end of myself so that he could begin to heal again, build again. When I shared what was happening at the college we were at, everyone we talked to was despairing. <laughs> and But when I talked to my good friend Mary who lives in North Carolina, she strongly encouraged me to see a Christian counselor that she had worked with. And I trusted Mary because I had seen a dramatic change in her own life, um, healing from anxiety and panic attacks. And more than that, I saw in her a deeper relationship with Jesus um, and an intimacy with Jesus that I hadn't seen before. So I trusted her. And I started meeting with this counselor at the time and I will never forget um, you know, I showed up to her, a complete wreck, and I said, this is what's happening, in the blah, 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 you know, at the college, and she listened and listened, and she tenderly said to me, she said, don't you see how much God loves you? Because he's using this situation at the college to recreate what you experienced as a child to bring that out into the light for healing. And I remember her kind words just wrecked me, and I bawled like a baby and held on to her hope. I I couldn't even hope for myself that God would use this terrible mess to bring healing to the deeper places of my soul. And honestly, it was probably only because of the chaos of that situation that I was able to let go, to open up my hand and let God do the work of deep healing in my life especially around the issues of with my mother because I was in such a desperate place. And when I began meeting with Nancy, I knew she was a counselor, but I, I didn't know that she was also trained in something called inner healing prayer. And inner healing prayer is a prayer that invites Jesus into those most deepest wounds of our hearts. It's not just talking your way out of the problems actually inviting Jesus into those places uh, to let him do his good healing work in us that only he can do. This was tiring, exhausting, and demanding work. And in some ways, it was similar. This is going to seem kind of graphic, but it was similar to a broken bone that had been reset poorly and then needed to be broken again in order to fully heal um, and because of that were the lies that I believed and false beliefs that it needed to be broken in order to mend again, and it felt that way. It was painful. It was breaking down of lies that I believed about myself and believed about God was necessary in order to rebuild the foundation and the truth of the goodness of God. I had to open up my hand and my heart to allow God to reparent me to teach me how to trust him and others, and how to receive his love. I had to open up my heart to receive his forgiveness in order for that forgiveness to flow out uh, to my mother and my father and to release the anger and bitterness and resentment that was eating me up inside. So after these trying years in Appalachia, God led our family to Calvin College and then on to Grove City. And we arrived here, I had just finished that season of intense counseling, and God had done so much work in my heart. I had three small, active, and lively children. Mac was like 18 months at the time, and Ethan used to call him Bam Bam because he was so crazy. Um, but from the very beginning, God led us to attend Grace Anglican, um, where I entered feeling raw and vulnerable after coming after such out of such an intense season. And at this time, like Ethan said, it was the very beginning of our church. And so do you remember a couple of weeks ago where we did the church annual meeting and he had the little line graph? I mean, this was the very beginning with maybe like, 60 or 70 people attending, and probably half of those were college students. So it was a really small group. And as I began to slowly open up and share my stories, I was amazed that at Grace Anglican, um, there were many different people who knew about inner healing prayer, had experienced inner healing prayer in their own life, so one would be Ethan and Monique, um, who were deeply impacted by the Freedom in Christ retreat that many of you have been on, and also by the Lazarus Center, uh, led by Valerie Betunek. R- the um, there was also Durwood and Lori Ray, who've since moved away to Texas, but they had experienced and had training in inner healing prayer through inner and the new Wineskins movement. And then there was also Sharon Beck, who had had significant experience with inner healing prayer uh, through her time at Northway Church down in Wexford. And so this was literally, that I, it, it was a sign and a wonder to me that God would be that good to me that I had just come out of this intense season of counseling and inner healing and God put me in a small little church in Western PA. We were meeting at Slippery Rock at the time with probably forty to sixty people, and there were four people who had had significant experience with inner healing. That was that blew my mind that God would give me that many people that um, could understand what I had been through and affirm that and confirm that in my life. Um, so that that was amazing. And as I look back now on my own journey of healing, there are many places where I see the hand of God and his great love for me, even during those difficult years living at home with my own mother. um, There were other women that the Lord brought into my life, like the families that I babysit for in high school, the neighbor who cared enough uh, to intervene for our family. Um, There was another neighbor who came over during that time. My mom was hospitalized, and I remember she did something simple like clean up our kitchen and wash the dishes. Um, yeah. And then my mentor that I had in college and (laughs) other amazing women that God provided for me when I was in, um, Washington, DC. Um, I wanted to share this little story, uh, because you know her, but before the Eiseminger's left for Africa. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Amy and I used to work together at the college and our offices were right beside each other. And we often had our doors open and we could hear chatter going on in each other's offices. And one day, it's probably Grace's sophomore year because she is living on campus at the end, but when she was living on campus, she would pop by from time to time and just pop in and chat with me and talk with me. And so I don't even remember what we talked about. It was probably something inconsequential, just what was going on and things like that. And after Amy left, after Grace left, Amy popped out of her office and came around to my office and she said, I just love to hear you talking to your girls. She said, You have such a sweet relationship with your daughters. And she said, She said, I. She said, I'm just so I love you, I have such a sweet relationship with your girls and your daughters. And um, and I'm crying now, but it just broke me. You know, it was just one of those moments where I was like, Wow, I just remember the prayers that I had prayed when they were little, and just God's faithful to the, this to me that. it just was one of those moments where you don't always see the healing work that God is doing, and then just, you know, and Amy knew a little bit of my story. She didn't know all of my story. But just a comment like that sometimes makes you stop and realize the healing work that God has done <laughs> in your own life and in your own family and the way he's redeemed and restored things that you could never do out of your own strength. Um, But it was just a sign of how far God has brought me. My friend Mary says that she sees a desperation in me to cling to Jesus, because I know that that is all I have. Um, I've hit my own rock bottom, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I cannot do life on my own. I've tried, and it didn't work. Um, For that, I'm grateful. After the resurrection, Jesus had his wounds, and I still do, too. I'm a broken and wounded person, just like my parents, but I've experienced the healing power of grace and the power of his resurrection life in and through me. Um, And it's in the depths that I've felt great pain and loss and instability, but I've also experienced the fullness and foundation of the everlasting arms of love. Um, In our healing care small group this fall, and it's fun because... Jeff and Anna Claire are here, and so is Alex and Jody. But we have these little books, and um, our teacher for the group, Terry Wardle, we love Terry, love Terry, but he talks about the old book of love and the new book of love. And his idea, it's just a teaching tool, is that the, our old book of love is the old ways that we've learned how to receive love from our families of origin that were unhealthy. So I have to please in order to be loved. I have to perform in order to be loved. I have to be good in order to be loved. And he really encouraged us to start a new book of love. And we gave everyone who was in the group these just little moleskins, you know, little tiny journals to write to encourage you to take note of the times that you see the goodness of God at work in your own life. And I just wrote one in it last week because Jody Brown um, at church celebrated with me something we'd found out about our move. And she was so joyful and so celebrated with me. It was like Jesus was there doing a little happy dance with me. And I came home and wrote that down in my little new book of love of of ways that God is providing for you and taking care of you. Um, God wants to reparent us, um, and I'm almost to the end, but I wanted to tell you this story, too. This had a a profound impact on me. In January, I got to go to Israel with um, 39 Grove City students. So Solgi was the male chaperone, and I was the female chaperone. And there were 10 or 12 of them from Grace Anglican that were on the trip with us, and they're not here tonight, but they would remember this so closely. It was such a special time to get to go and have that experience with them. I mean, we really, it was just a, just a gift um, in my own life. But one of the things our trip set up for us is that we were there during a Shabbat, um, their, their Sunday, their holy day, and we got to go actually into the home of... Um, other Jews there to have Shabbat dinner with their family. And so our family was Sarah and Stephen. They were from Atlanta, but have made Aliyah to Jerusalem. So um, it was wonderful because they spoke English. And they had five beautiful daughters. And so what would happen is during the Shabbat dinner, they would go through and explain everything they were doing. So the blessing of the candles. And then Stephen started with, he he said, a blessing over his wife. And then this was the part that just wrecked me. He, for each of his daughters, he took his daughters and he says a blessing over them. He took them and held their face in his hands. And he said unto them, he said, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And then he would whisper in each of their ear like a little special um, thing to them. But can you imagine he did that to each girl, each daughter one by one. He went down the road and spoke that blessing to them. It was so tender and can you imagine that? And they had five girls, but you do the same for sons, for daughters and for sons. So every Friday night as a part of their Shabbat, he blesses his wife and he blesses each of their children and looks them in the face and says these words of blessing. I was, I was like, wow, what a picture of God reparenting you. So if, if you be so gracious, I just want you to close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to ask you to participate. And uh, I'm going to read these words over you. And I want you to imagine your Heavenly Father saying these words of peace over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I want my face to shine on you. I want to be gracious to you. I'm turning my face towards you and I want to give you peace. There's so many things in that verse. You could take just one of those things and meditate on that or write that down in your little book of love. And if you feel so inclined, I'd encourage you to start your own little book of love. And that's why I had you write down your four people who've been the incarnational hands and feet of Jesus to you. Um, Those can be your first four entries in your little new book of love of the way God is taking care of you. This is my story in God, but I want you to see it, that God is is reparenting all of us. When we're born again into the new family of God, um, we get to be a child again, and we get to be reparented by our heavenly Father. This is the very last story, I promise. Um, this past Christmas, my parents came out from Texas to spend the holiday with us, and one of the most difficult things about living with a family member um, who has mental illness is um, it's it's a brokenness that we may not, we will probably not be, see healed on this side of eternity. And I know for many of you, there are griefs and sorrows and losses that are like that. It's not something um, that is tied up neatly with a bow that has a kind of um, Netflix original happy ending, you know. (laughs) But but one of the difficult things is at some point you have to accept things for what they are and that they may never be. Better or be what you want them to be. You have to let go of expectations, unrealistic expectations, and you have to love people where they are and not where they should be. At one point during their visit when they were there, it was kind of like the Amy Isominger moment. I just noticed like an inner peace, an inner calm that I had within myself I also noticed a significant decrease in my need to control, a decrease in my desire to try everything within my power to make my parents happy, to stop over-functioning, to make up for the lack. It's a God-given gift. It's only by the grace of God that I'm able to accept them as they are and feel at peace with that. And I realized that I'm still the little child and that I have everything I need from my heavenly father. I can trust (laughs) him completely. And after that holiday visit, I was reminded of this psalm that I'm going to close with. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Amen. Amen.